0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us. Today we have with us Dr. Rick Boo uh, from uh, Sims Murphy Clinic. Uh, he's a master surgeon who's going to be talking to us about technical nuances for resection of very challenging lesions. And those are the thalamal peduncular tumors in pediatric patients.
1: With us, and please go ahead. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate the invitation to talk about this group of, uh, of unique tumors Uh, to younger children. We've had the occasion to have experience with uh, about a dozen of these tumors over the last few years, and with our newer functional imaging technology, we've learned some lessons in the management of these tumors. This is an interesting group of of tumors, and uh, they typically will present with a progressive hemiparesis as the tumors grow from the cerebral peduncle. And as you can see in our uh, group of children here, they typically present in the first decade or decade and a half of life. I've not seen these tumors in older people. They seem to be unique to the younger children. They don't have pain. They typically don't develop hydrocephalus or present with headaches. um, But they present with progressive spastic hemiparesis. And depending on where the tumor arises in in the peduncle, Uh, the face may be more involved than the arm, the arm may be more involved than the leg. In some children, it's the gait that that first brings it to attention and then the arm gets to be more involved later. Uh, Typically, these children may be treated non-surgically or just with a biopsy at at first presentation because of the deep location of these tumors. if you look at the scans that I'll show you in a moment, you'll see that these are focal brainstem tumors, and most of the time they are benign histology, almost always pilocytic. We've had one child in this group whose tumor at biopsy proved to be a diffusely infiltrative low grade astrocytoma, and we managed him with low grade chemotherapy and not with resection, given that his histology was infiltrative into the brainstem and basal ganglia the understanding of these tumors is is uh, important the recognition of them as a distinct group is important because if you look back through the literature on these tumors they typically are lumped in with thalamic tumors sometimes they're described as tumors of the inferior thalamus and as surgeons when people think about thalamic tumors they tend to like to approach them from a transcollosal approach. With these tumors, they arise from the peduncle underneath the thalamus, and the normal thalamus is pushed up by the tumor. So a transcollosal approach to these would take you through normal thalamus and would be the wrong approach for these tumors. As you can see in our series here, a number of these children were treated with biopsy or partial resection. And then often sent on to chemotherapy, given their young age. Uh, and when they progressed on chemotherapy, which they all tend to do over time, then that's when they typically get referred in into us. So here are uh, some representative pictures of these tumors. Sometimes they enhance. Sometimes they don't. If they're good size and they enhance in a heterogeneous fashion, they're often thought to be glioblastomas, and sometimes these children are treated with chemotherapy and radiation without a biopsy with this mistaken thought that they're uh, malignant brain tumors. As you can see here, they're focal tumors, and typically the normal thalamus is pushed up. So, as, as I mentioned earlier, a transcollosal approach to these tumors would take you through the normal thalamus to get to them. If it's a large tumor like this, that may be a route to get into the tumors, uh, but generally, the normal anatomy of the thalamus is so thinned out, there are no accurate planes. So, typically, neurosurgeons have described more inferior approaches to these tumors. In the paper by... Tad Tomita, he described seven of these children uh, that he treated and typically they were approached from a subtemporal approach. In some children, the tumors may arise higher up in the brainstem and that would make a subtemporal approach not a good approach if one wanted to achieve a gross total resection. In other cases, the tumor may arise lower in the brainstem and a subtemporal approach may be feasible. Uh, Sometimes if they're at the edge of the tentorium, they may grow down into the posterior fossa as well as up into the the middle fossa. But the point is that these are benign tumors and uh, they should be uh, considered for surgical cure. One of the interesting aspects about these tumors is that although they start out in the peduncle, they'll grow uh, where it's easiest for them to grow. So typically, as they expand, they'll fill the ambient cistern. And as they continue to grow, they'll grow into the middle fossa and uh, displace the anterior choroidal artery and actually tear the fimbria of the hippocampus at the choroidal fissure and then continue to grow into the the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle. So, as you see here, it's not uncommon for them uh, to cross into the temporal horn, which gives a surgeon a good access point for these tumors from a middle temporal gyrus approach. And as you can see in this example, the tumor extends up much too high for one to approach from a subtemporal uh, trajectory if you plan to get a gross total resection. So, the middle temporal gyrus approach takes you into the center of the tumor, and as you work in the tumor, the part that stretched the normal thalamus up will typically deliver itself downwards, making a a resection possible. So, let's go to the video on this first case. You see her films here. Uh, This is a child that came to us in her first decade of life with progressive hemiparesis, did not have any visual abnormalities, although one wonders where the optic tract may be displaced in this case, and I'll show you a good example of that in the next case. So let me pause the video here to orient orient you. What we've done is to uh, place the the uh, patient in a temporal lobectomy sort of position with the malar eminence fixed towards the ceiling, co-registered to our frameless stereotactic neuro-navigation system. And using that, uh, this is the middle temporal gyrus. We've performed a corticotomy. Well, actually we've used the frameless stereotaxy to guide this ventricular catheter through the middle temporal gyrus down to the tumor in the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle. In our, our uh, practice, we tend to use what we call a quadroscope, which is microscope with binocular vision, the surgeon standing across from one another on either side of the head. And this allows us to use a forehand technique where uh, once each surgeon has two instruments. Typically, you see here a bipolar and a sucker. So we start out with the catheter. We know we've gotten there when we see clear colorless CSF come out of the catheter. And then on the video here, you'll see us just spread the tissue on either side of the catheter to widen out the tract down to the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle and down to the tumor. And by having the uh, surgeons stand one across from the other, you can see Uh, we can each retract for one another as we work down to the tumor. So these patties are half by three patties, and so that gives you an idea of the size of the tract as we work down to the temporal horn. Once we get there, you see the typical gray, and that allows us access to the tumor. The the, uh, interest in these tumors and, it, and the surgical approach to them came from our experience with our first case in which we recognized that the tumor had crossed into the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle and we thought that a, an approach through the Sylvian fissure opening the Sylvian fissure widely would be the best approach and would avoid having to violate normal cortex. We did that. We got into the tumor in the temporal horn, got a nice clean resection, but the patient woke up with a worse hemiparesis than he had preoperatively. And that caused us some wonder as to where the corticospinal tracts might be displaced in these children. So in this case, this is a child with a typical thalamopeduncular tumor, typical presentation of progressive hemiparesis. And in the blue here, you see the normal corticospinal tracts on the uninvolved side. In this case, the corticospinal tracts are pushed mesially to the tumor and draped over the medial aspect of of the tumor. That's why our trajectory from a middle temporal gyrus approach brought us into the center of the tumor and uh, yet allowed us to spare the corticospinal tracts as, as part of our resection. This is a coronal view, and again, you can see quite nicely here the normal corticospinal fibers coming down this way, but on this side, the corticospinal tracts are pushed, deviated mesially by the tumor. And you can see from middle temporal gyrus approach here, you've got a nice trajectory to both the upper and the lower aspect of the tumor. So this is her postoperative scan. Uh, the child whose video you just saw, and you can see uh, the resection cavity, you can see the choroid plexus in the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle here, Uh, you can almost see the track that we made down to get to the tumor here, and this is the axial image. These patients are always worse in terms of their motor function immediately after surgery, but then uh, with a few weeks of outpatient physical therapy, they'll typically get their, their uh, motor function back. And uh, all of these patients have gone on to be independent ambulators following resection of their tumors. Here's another child, uh, the same sort of picture, same presentation, progressive hemiparesis. In this case, her leg was more involved than the arm and you can see right here quite nicely how the tumor has grown across the ambient cistern and, again, broaching the middle fossa, temporal horn visualized here. In this case, the tractography demonstrates that her corticospinal tracts are pushed laterally in relation to the tumor. And this is actually the most common pattern that we've seen amongst these children. I believe six out of the 10 had the tracts pushed anterior laterally. And you can see, if this is where the corticospinal tracts are, that that transsylvian approach that I used on my first case before we had tractography was actually the wrong approach because it took us right through the corticospinal tract to get the tumor out. So in a case like this, here is her coronal imaging. Here is the normal corticospinal tract on the uninvolved side. Here is the tumor. And here is the corticospinal tract draped over the anterolateral aspect of the tumor uh, at the Sylvian fissure. So in this case, a middle temporal gyrus approach using frameless stereotactic guidance to avoid the corticospinal tract but to come through the middle temporal gyrus just behind the motor tracts, will get us right into the tumor in the temporal horn. And so, as in the last case, we placed the catheter, we saw the spinal fluid, we widened out the tract down to the temporal horn. And one of the things we've learned over time, we've had uh, one or two patients that awakened with an homonymous hemianopsia and recognized that the, uh, the optic tract can be Uh, stretched out and quite thinned out over the tumor capsule, so that's another important structure to watch for in the approach to these tumors. So in this case, we started uh, with our thin section MRI at the chiasm and followed the tract around, and you can see it here stretched around the lateral aspect of the tumor, and starts out at the inferior aspect of the tumor and comes up to the superior aspect of the tumor laterally. And knowing that that's there, um, we can watch out for it at the time of surgery and try not to violate it. I should mention that uh, in the tumors that arise more inferiorly in the peduncle, uh, the same can be said for the third nerve. The third nerve may be stretched inferiorly around the uh, the, uh, tumor capsule. And we've had one case in which it was so thinned out we couldn't distinguish the third nerve from the tumor capsule and actually cut the third nerve inadvertently um, because we didn't make that recognition. So here's this child. We've taken the catheter out after we've gotten down to the temporal horn. You can see here choroid plexus. You see us developing uh, the exposure of the alveus of the hippocampus and you'll see how the tumor has grown through the uh, choroidal fissure into the temporal horn there. So here we're using those half-by-half patties to keep the choroid plexus out of the way. This white structure that you see here is the alveus of the hippocampus. You see us opening up the fimbria and underneath it, you'll see the tumor capsule, the grayish blue of the typical tumor capsule in these cases. So again, we'll advance these patties to try to protect the hippocampus And it's it's interesting, even though we've manipulated the the, uh, hippocampus in these patients, we've not seen any problems with short-term memory. We've not seen any temporal lobe seizures in any of these children to date. What you're seeing in the picture here coming into view uh, through the ambient cistern is the basal vein of Rosenthal here and the optic tract here. And as the uh, video advances a bit, you'll see that even better. So, again, hippocampus here. Hippocampus here, Alveus will protect that. Optic tract here, basal vein of Rosenthal here, this is the capsule of the tumor underneath the basal vein. So here, we've protected the optic tract with our patties. We've opened the tumor capsule on either side of the vein. And once we've exposed the tumor, then we can bring in the ultrasonic aspirator. I'll tell you that uh, in the course of taking this tumor out, uh, as we started to debulk, the vein became less turgid, and we actually took the vein, and the patient seemed to tolerate that just fine. Once the uh, tumor is exposed, it's the typical gray fish flesh appearance of a pilocytic astrocytoma. And that's very visually and texturally distinct from the subjacent uh, corticospinal tracts or brainstem white matter tracts. So when you get to the end of the tumor, the brainstem comes into view, is easily distinguished from the tumor. Let's see if we can stop it there just to show you. Right here. So this is the typical white of the underlying brainstem. This is typical gray of the tumor, and usually they'll uh, come right off of the brainstem at this level. So it's easy to identify the uh, brainstem tracts when you get to that point. And here you can see her postoperative s- scan. This is our tract coming in through the middle temporal gyrus down to the temporal horn. This is. Enhancement of the choroid plexus within the temporal horn, as you see here. This is the resection cavity. And through that trajectory, the uh, corticospinal tracts that were pushed anterolaterally were spared. And she's probably three years out from surgery now. She's doing uh, fine clinically, no evidence of recurrence. So this is a video her parents sent me by... Internet um, approximately three months after surgery.
0: Okay, can you wiggle your fingers.
1: Taking okay, you wiggle your fingers.
0: Okay. Can you smile big? Lift eyebrows. Smile big? Okay. Can you turn can around and walk?
1: Okay, can you turn around and walk? So as you can see, the gait is not perfectly normal, and most of these children will retain some residual motor deficit. Can you smile again even after the the tumors resected. Okay, see
0: you, Dr. Booth. See you, Dr. Booth. Okay. Bye. See Dr. Bye. See you, Dr.
1: Booth. So I'll make the point, in some of these children, the leg has some residual uh, spasticity, and some of the children, uh, the arm may be more of a problem. Typically, the face recovers quite well. This is another case that was referred to us. This is a three-year-old from uh, Southern California who had again presented with this tumor. Her local neurosurgeon had performed a stereotactic biopsy and uh, demonstrated that this was pilocytic histology. Again, you can see focal tumor. In this case, the normal thalamus is very thinned out over the top and and pushed posteriorly. It's interesting to note that even though this is a pilocytic tumor, it does not enhance on MRI. And that's true of, of some pilocytics. they don't all enhance. You can see enhancement along the biopsy tract, but the tumor itself is non-enhancing. On the other hand, on the T2 and flare, it's very focal, very well circumscribed. She had gotten to the point where she could barely walk anymore with her hemiparesis and could not use her arm. In this case, on her tractography, the corticospinal tracts that you see here were draped over the entire lateral aspect of the tumor, making any sort of lateral approach uh, not as appealing as it was in the prior two cases. Again, here you see normal corticospinal tract on this side, and in her case, Uh, the the involved corticospinal tract is draped over the whole lateral aspect of the tumor. So there was not a lateral approach that would work in this case. So based on that knowledge, we decided to follow his biopsy tract in from a frontal approach and resect the tumor in her case, as you see here. And uh, interestingly, at the bottom of the resection, we were actually able to see the optic tract down here at the end of the case. And this is her postoperative scan two years after surgery showing no evidence of recurrence and no evidence of residual. That tractus has uh, gotten smaller over time. So here's a video her parents sent me six months following surgery and you'll demonstr- You'll see quite nicely that in this case her leg is recovered almost completely. But she still has some residual spasticity in the arm. Still has a clumsy hand on that left side. Her face is completely recovered. Now, in the car, so walk, now walk, walk to Joe. Okay, try again. Throw
0: mommy the ball. Good job. Do it again. Do it to him.
1: So a functionally functionally good child, but not a a uh, complete recovery. And as I mentioned, most of these children will have some residual motor deficits. So I would like to mention that uh, we've had we've had one child uh, referred in, in in which, on preoperative imaging, we thought that we had a confluent tumor that was surgically curable. We took it out, the child did well, but six months later, he had a multifocal recurrence with uh, several different areas within the brainstem and down in the posterior fossa where the tumor was recurring. And uh, in that case, he went on, he progressed on chemotherapy and went on to focal radiation. But in general, uh, these thalamopeduncular tumors are focal brainstem tumors that generally have benign histology. Being pilocytic tumors, they tend to displace normal brain anatomy rather than infiltrate brain anatomy, which gives us the opportunity as surgeons to cure these children. They all present with progressive hemiparesis. As I mentioned, they don't present with uh, hydrocephalus. They don't present with seizures. They don't present with symptoms of raised intracranial pressure. They don't present with diplopia or extraocular motility problems. It's purely a corticospinal tract presentation. We found that the use of diffusion tensor imaging and tractography has proven useful in recognizing preoperatively where these tracts have been uh, displaced by the tumors and in designing the, the best surgical approach for the individual patient. I'll mention again that the normal thalamus is typically pushed up or draped over the top of the tumor, making a dorsal approach to these tumors not so appealing. The uh, three critical structures that we worry about in these are the corticospinal tracts, the optic tract, which is typically draped laterally around these tumors, and the third nerve, which is stretched inferiorly. And if you get there and find that the tumor is down below the tentorial edge, uh, look carefully for the third nerve. We, as I mentioned, had one case in which it was so thinned out we couldn't tell the third nerve from the tumor capsule, and actually cut it inadvertently as part of our approach to the tumor.
0: Thank you. Thanks uh, very much. Really, excellent uh, talk for managing a very very difficult tumor probably one of the most difficult tumors in pediatrics. Um, My first question for you is what are your indications? Could you please elaborate? Is it for sure progressive hemiparesis? How about if the patient does have a good amount of hemiparesis but it's static? Uh, Could you elaborate on
1: that? Yeah, We've, we've not seen any of these children who have a static hemiparesis. They all come in with progressive worsening as the tumors get larger and given that they're arising out of the brain stem, they don't have to get huge before the children become symptomatic, which is why uh, they tend to come to the attention of the the physicians before they get to the point that they've developed uh, hydrocephalus. So they don't have static hemiparesis. The majority of the kids in our series have had a biopsy demonstrating that it's a benign tumor, and then typically are referred for chemotherapy, usually low-grade chemotherapy. Because of their young age, they've not typically been referred for radiation. We had one child in whom the imaging was interpreted as probable glioblastoma, and he was referred for radiation therapy, but he came to us before he received radiation therapy
0: would you offer surgical treatment, or would you watch them until they start progressing Um
1: I've not had any kids who had a, a static hemiparesis. I guess if they presented early, that's a discussion that one could have with the family. But um, as I mentioned, all of these children, even though the tumor comes out fairly well, had some sort of residual neurologic deficit and it makes you wonder if it's because they often come to us at the point where they can't use their arm and hand anymore or can't walk anymore before the surgeon is invited to be a part of the the discussion and I think if we were able to get to these children sooner our chances of maintaining a better neurological function uh, are better for us yeah at at a year post-op Um, They have all gotten better. There are none that are completely normal. As you've seen in the videos, they tend to be back walking independently. Uh, Some have had to have a brace for a tight heel cord or something like that. But they've all been able to get back to an ambulatory status. We've had a couple of kids who had an homonymous hemianopsia. uh, And that's important to know. We've had the one child in whom we inadvertently cut the third nerve, and she went on to have surgery by the ophthalmologists so that she still had a functional eye. Her parents sent me a picture uh, a year after surgery of her playing softball, so she was able to get back to playing sports despite that. We do have one child uh, who has had some early evidence of recurrence in in the resection cavity, and so far it's small and it's not progressed much. We're just watching that by MRI, but we've told the family that should that progress over time, our recommendation would be to go back and try to get the rest of it out.
0: Last question I have for you. I see that you're using a transtemporal, transventricular, transcoloidal approach to these tumors. What about considering a transsylvian, transventricular, transcoloidal? I know you mentioned that you don't want to go
1: through the insula. That makes good sense. Yes, I I misspoke in the first case. We did not go through the insula to get to the tumor. We opened the sylvian fissure, got into the temporal horn of the lateral ventricle, just as you would if you were doing an amygdala hippocampicomy, style. And that's the child that woke up with a worse hemiparasis. hemiparesis. So the corticospinal tract is so thinned out at that level by the tumor, I think it's hard to tell where it is. Uh, in cases where the tracts are pushed medially, uh, I think that's probably a reasonable approach. There's no question we could get all the tumor out from that approach. Uh, I think it's important when you look at these tumors on a coronal image to see how high up they go or how, how, how low they are along the side of the brain stem and make sure that the trajectory you choose will allow you access to the whole tumor.
0: Um, I want to have you with us again in the near future and thanks again. Thank you, appreciate it.